0: is, again, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. That is at page 1039 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. That is exactly the same reading that we had this morning, but this time we'll focus on Nineveh, when when Christ refers to Nineveh, starting from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Psalm 117 shows that God's compassion is not limited to Israel, but also includes the nations. That compassion is what we'll also read about in Jonah chapter 3. Let's sing of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it so far. After the sermon, we'll respond by singing Psalm 30, Senses 1, 2, and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, Jonah chapter 3, unlike the other chapters of the book of Jonah, is not about Jonah. Instead, when it comes to chapter 3, we get to read about the miraculous repentance of Nineveh. That said, there are at least two sermons in this chapter. One is a sermon on mission, because Jonah goes to a foreign country, Nineveh, and preaches. The other is a sermon on repentance, because Nineveh repents. Since I only had the opportunity to write one sermon on this chapter, I've chosen to go with the latter one. I would think that's playing it safe, because that's how Jesus Christ takes this passage. As you read in Matthew 12, Jesus Christ refers to Jonah chapter 3 and gives the message on repentance. He says... The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Christ is pointing to Nineveh and saying, hey, they repented, and I'm a greater prophet, why aren't you repenting? The fact that Jesus Christ used this text in that way should be enough reason. But to strengthen the argument, Let me read a quote from a Jewish commentary. Israel said to God, Master of the universe, if we repent, will you accept it? God responded, would I accept the repentance of the people of Nineveh and not yours? See, so that's in the same line as what Jesus did. Chapter 3 records the repentance of Nineveh, but the book of Jonah was given to God's people for Israel in the Old Testament and for us. That is, to call us to repentance. That brings us to the theme and points. The theme for the sermon is God shows, God shows compassion on the repentant people. God shows compassion on the repentant people. In the first point, we will consider the call to repentance. In the second, the sincerity of repentance. Third, the fruit of repentance. Let's begin with the call to repentance that Nineveh receives. We get to read a little bit about Jonah because he is the prophet who brings this call to repentance to Nineveh. In verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And this time, Jonah obeys. That's not surprising. I don't think he has another option. Like, what's, what's he going to do, run away? He tried that, got thrown, in, thrown into the raging sea, almost drowns, spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And we know that it was a terrifying experience for Jonah because Jonah refers it the belly of the fish, as the belly of Sheol, that is, the grave. So this time, Jonah obeys and goes to Nineveh. But the context of Jonah 1 and 2, what Jonah went through, gives, implies two things. First is that whatever is going to come out from Jonah's mouth is going to be the message of God. And This passage makes this clear in verse 2 there, God says, deliver the message I have given you. So given what Jonah has gone through, you can be sure that whatever comes from his mouth will be the message of God. You know when you discipline children or get, put them into trouble, get them into trouble, they'll be in their best behavior for, temporarily at least. And the second implication is that whatever this message is. It's important, very important for God that this message is delivered to Nineveh. Otherwise, God wouldn't have put Jonah through all this trial. That what, what Jonah has gone through shows how important it is for God to Nineveh to listen to this message. And what is this message? I refer to it as the call to repentance, But it's actually not a call to repentance. It's more like a message of destruction. We read it in verse 4. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a message of destruction and doom. Now, why does Nineveh receive a message of destruction? In chapter 1, God says that the evil of Nineveh came up to him. And this message is God's response to that evil. This message reveals to us who God is. God is just, and so he punishes evil. The sovereign Lord does not tolerate evil for too long in his kingdom. He will punish evildoers. Nineveh was a brutal nation, as I've mentioned in Jonah 1. I compared it to North Korea. Not only did they kill their enemies in gruesome ways, but they also boasted about how they killed people and tortured them in writings and reliefs. We know that from archaeology, but their violence is also mentioned in our passage in verse 8. The king proclaims that everyone turn from the violence that is in his hands. Because of their violence, it's fitting that they receive punishment under the justice of God. We would want such sadistic people to be punished. I personally want evil and cruel people to be punished, to receive justice. That's also why Jonah wanted to flee away from Nineveh and go to Tarshish, because he knew that God is merciful and gracious. And Jonah was right. Despite the evil of the Ninevites, God shows them grace and mercy in two ways. First is that God lets Nineveh know he sends Jonah to warn them. And think about this. If God simply wanted to destroy Nineveh, He didn't have to warn them. He didn't have to inform them. He could have just done it. That leads to the second and the main reason. In, in hindsight, we know that God gives them something like a probation period. And see verse 4 again. Yet 40 days, Jonah says. God gave them 40 days to repent. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that the story of Nineveh's miraculous repentance is a call to repentance to, for Israel. From the book of Second Kings, which is the same period where Jonah, Prophet Jonah was active, You read that the kings were not faithful. Jeroboam II, his father Jehoash, and his son Zechariah, all of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, three generations of kings before and after Jonah's ministry who are not faithful to God were evil. And it was for them that Jonah three was written. And it is a call to repentance to God's people, and God's people includes us. That And when it comes to us, it's a more urgent message. Repentance is not an easy topic. It's not a topic that I find easy to preach on. But I'm not more gracious than God is who gave this message to his people. And having said that, the message of destruction applies to us because we are by nature no different than the Ninevites. Biologically, we're not Jews. That means we're Gentiles, the nations, just like the Ninevites. And this is what the Bible tells about our nature. By nature, we were enemies of God. That's how, who we are. And God is still the unchanging, just judge of the world, who cannot stand evil and sin. So by nature, we deserve God's wrath. Moreover, the message is stronger for us for this reason. Brothers and sisters, Nineveh was given 40 days, but we're not given 40 days. Perhaps we're given more time, Perhaps it's less, but we don't know. The Lord will come like a thief at night. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. There's so much more urgency for us. To add to the urgency, for us, Christ came to call us to repentance. Repentance. Our call to repentance comes from someone far greater than Jonah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And imagine the offense. How much greater would our offense be if we ignore such a great prophet? That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12 the men of Nineveh will rise up at, at the judgment to condemn those who did not listen to the preaching of Jesus Christ and who did not repent. So the message is clear. Every one of us, without exception, must repent, turn away from sin, and turn towards God. That's in fact what it means to be Christian. What is the life of a Christian if not a continual life of repentance? Because we constantly sin, Let me give you a little quiz. We're all members of a Reformed Church. In 1517, a friar named Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses. This 95 Theses was instrumental to the Reformation. And now here's the question. Do you know what the first thesis is? Do you know what the first thesis is? I'll give you a hint. One of the main reasons Luther wrote the 95 Thesis is because he was sickened by the selling of indulgences. And here is the answer. The first thesis that Luther wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to to be one of repentance. Luther was sick of the Roman Catholic Church making people believe that sins could be somehow be paid for by buying of indulgences, touching relics and, and rituals. He took repentance seriously and wrote that the entire life, the entire life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Is your life a life of repentance? A life of repentance is not a life without sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A life of repentance is a life of continual confession and a repeated confession and turning away from sin. So how do we live a life of repentance? The first step is to take God at his word. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed the message that Jonah preached. They took God at his word. For the Ninevites, that meant that Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. And that's what you must do too. You must take God at his word. And when we do that, when we believe in God's word, thankfully, we have a much more gracious message. Christ, through his apostle, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, this is also a call to repentance. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Why? For what purpose? That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Compare what I've just read to the message that Nineveh received. Nineveh received a judgment-heavy message of little hint of God's mercy. But our call to repentance clearly states God's mercy, the forgiveness of sin, sanctification, and the coming of our Savior, Jesus. The man of Nineveh took God at his word. Do you take God at his word? Compared to Ninevites, why wouldn't you? It's so much more gracious. The scripture is clear that we have to repent. Obviously, we have to repent from our sins, We have to repent of our lack of knowledge, our poor attitude. And how about repenting from not being what what we could be if we've reached our full potential given all the gifts and talents that God has given us? We should repent for not hating sin as much as we should. And we should repent for not loving God as he deserves it. Believing God's message was the first step first step of the Ninevites. But the Ninevites' repentance does not stop there. Their, their repentance continues, and it's absolutely sincere. And brothers and sisters, their repentance serves as a great model to us. And I would dare say that if you're going to repent, if we're going to repent, it should at least look like this. Verse 5 continues. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The following verses 6 to 9 gives us more explanation of how their repentance looked like. Their repentance is an extreme expression of humbling themselves before God. The reality of impending doom was so real to them that they lost all appetite with the things that they enjoyed. It's an expression of self-denial. The king from a, the king denies his position. He arose from the throne and sits on ashes. He refuses to keep up with his appearance. He removed his royal robes and wore sackcloths. And the king commanded that his people and animals do the same. And altogether they deny life itself by declaring a fast. I realize that fasting is a bit of a trend right now. Some people fast even up to seven days regularly for health benefits. And intermittent fasting is quite common these days. Intermittent fasting means that you don't eat for something about 14 to 16 hours. And it's really not that difficult to do. It often happens when people sleep in and they wake up. It's too late for breakfast, not early enough for lunch. They wait a couple hours and I guess I'm intermittent fasting. That's not what's going on here. Notice how serious their fasting is. In verse seven, that neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything, let them not feed and catch this part or drink water. These people were not drinking water. When's the last time you even felt hunger? Hunger to the point that your stomach hurts. We're told from the previous generation that we do not know what hunger is, and they're probably right. But the Ninevites are experiencing hunger and thirst. Their repentance is not empty rituals or just asceticism. First, they're praying to God sincerely. Look at verse 8. The king decreed, let them call out mildly to God, which is prayer. They're also morally reforming their lives. The verse continues, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Imagine Imagine how Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, would have been like. Animals crying out in hunger, cows mooing, sheep buying, dogs barking, people mightily calling out to God, and babies crying. How does your repentance compare to that of the Ninevites? As evil as the Assyrians were, they don't seem too bad now, do they? When's the last time that you've humbled yourself, fasted, called upon the Lord, and consciously put an end to your sin? I bet your repentance does not even look like half of the Ninevites' repentance Mine's not, for sure. But you must have repented in your life. Have you ever shed tears for your sins? Have you ever had tears of repentance run down on your face? If you have, do you think that was good enough? You see, the moment of repentance is such a dramatic moment for a lot of people so that many people, the experience of repentance serves as their conversion moment, it's their proof that they are saved. And perhaps you think you're saved because you had a tearful repentance. But do you think that your repentance was acceptable? Enough before our Lord? Our Lord is holy, holy, holy. Do you think your repentance will ever, ever be acceptable? How about no? Never, never by itself. But our repentance can be acceptable through Christ. It can be accepted through Christ. And this is something I find a lot of comfort in. Part of my early teenage years were spent in a church influenced by a revival movement. There was a lot of emphasis on spiritual experience and conversion experience. Church life wasn't focused on the weekly worship and the administration of sacraments, not, not on the preaching. Church life. Church life was focused on the three-day revivals that happened in the summer vacation, in the summer breaks and the winter breaks. In those retreats, there were always a buildup of emotionally charged singing and prayer till the evening climaxed in an altar call. It was an environment that heavily emphasized repentance. And I could never tell if my repentance was good enough and deep enough for God to accept me. it caused me to doubt. I really didn't have assurance of salvation, and those were spiritually difficult years. Perhaps that's your spiritual journey. Perhaps that's what you're going through right now. If I tried to think what the problem was, the problem was not that there was a heavy emphasis on repentance. The problem of what I've experienced was that repentance wasn't emphasized enough. The problem was that the standard of repentance was lowered as if it was humanly possible. Like, what are you going to do? Catalog all your sins? And how much tears do you have to shed before your repentance to be accepted? by God. What freed me is is when I learned that Christ is my righteousness. There is a beautiful line that I hold dearly, and I'll let you know what that is. An unnamed Puritan once said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are. Our tears of repentance are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Do you believe this? Your repentance might not seem or might not be as extreme as as that of the man of Nineveh. But the reality is, your repentance is better. And how could that be? Because no one in Nineveh humbled themselves like Jesus Christ did. We read in Philippians that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, and humbled himself to the point of death a lowly criminal's death on the cross. No one in Nineveh called to God, called out to God like Jesus did. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood. Because you believe in Jesus Christ, your repentance is perfect and acceptable before God. All that Christ has done is ours in faith. God imputes, God imputes to us, that is, puts on our account Christ's perfect trust and dependence. So your only acceptable response to God's call to repentance is to turn to Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, And this is the beauty of the gospel. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. So I urge you, turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turning to Jesus Christ will spare you from God's wrath. Likewise, Nineveh was spared from disaster. See, verse 10. And God saw what they did. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Why does God do this? He has no obligations to spare Nineveh. Nineveh have done so much evil already. Their evil has come up before God in chapter 1. The people whom they killed are not going to come back to life because they repented. It will be perfectly just for God to punish Nineveh. And that's how sometimes justice works in our lives, isn't it? Imagine that a student in school did something bad, terribly bad, and he's going to be expelled from school. He realizes how horrible being expelled from school would be, and the consequences that implies And he he regrets what he has done. So he asks for forgiveness. The damage has been done. Like, what about the trauma the victim might have to live for the rest of his life? And Why should the teachers and parents and the students forgive him just because he repents? They, They could say, let him be expelled so that he learns a lesson that would be perfectly fine, and that will be justice. Imagine how the student, the student would feel even as he repents. Imagine the uncertainty this student would have, would feel. And that's how this king of Nineveh felt too. He wasn't sure what would come about of his repentance. See in verse 9, He says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's uncertainty. But because of God's mercy, they were spared. Congregation, how much more for us the Ninevites repented after hearing Jonah's message. And what he brought to the, Ninev- brought to the people of Nineveh was more like a j- message of destruction than the gospel. His message did not include the explicit message of Jesus Christ. But ours does. Our message does. We have a better prophet, Jesus Christ himself, someone greater than Jonah, and some are much more reliable we don't have to say or ask who knows we know our repentance definitely will be accepted by god not only is our repentance perfect in christ as i have been explaining and preaching to you in the second point but the scripture makes it clear that our sins are forgiven all the evil that we have done is transferred to Christ, and the righteousness that Christ has achieved is transferred to us. And I'll read you a verse that captures the heart of this gospel, of the gospel, in a beautiful way. This verse is referred, often referred to as a great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Apostle Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, we don't have to be uncertain. We don't have to ask, who knows? We know. We know that Christ has died for our sins. He who did not even know sin received the penalty of sin. This truth is expressed so f- with so much certainty that the, uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't even write that Jesus became stained with sin. He doesn't describe that he was somehow polluted by sin. He writes that Jesus Christ became sin itself, if that is what happened to the Son of God, the embodiment of purity and holiness, we can be sure that we are righteous before God. We are righteous before God. And this truth, again, is expressed with as much certainty by the Apostle Paul. He doesn't say that we are righteous before God. He doesn't describe our righteousness. He says, we are the righteousness of God. And this is the great exchange between our sins and Christ's righteousness. In the place of our sackcloth of sin, we are given the robes of Christ's righteousness. So the New Testament makes it clear that our sins are forgiven. But there's more. The wonder of the gospel does not end there. How do you even begin to understand that God also adopts us, adopts us as God's children? That's extra. That's more than just our sins being forgiven. That wasn't even part of the deal for the Ninevites. Forgiveness of sin... Wasn't even mentioned. An adoption as God's children would have certainly be beyond their imagination. The Ninevites were just hoping that they would not perish. This wasn't even expected. And all this is achieved through Jesus Christ. Do you see how much greater God's mercy in Jesus is? How much greater God's mercy is in Jesus Christ? We are adopted as children of God through Jesus Christ and we're reminded of this truth in every baptism. Adoption is a wonderful reality that baptism pictures. And there God says, "I will be your God and you will be my people." And we're given the covenant promise. For what? by the mere virtue of being born in the covenant. That's pure grace. So do you see how much more, how much greater God's blessings are in Jesus Christ? And if we were to ask God, like the Jews did, Master of the universe, if we repent, Will you accept it? What would be God's response for the sake of Jesus Christ? Certainly and truly, or as they would say in Hebrew, Amen.